thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up for a Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. Cindy O'Meara. And our beautiful Kimmy is still away this week. So we have got an amazing guest for you guys who we're hoping is going to provide, I don't know, some real thought-provoking information and really get us thinking about what it means to have mental health and mental fitness and wellness. Now, I know that you guys have heard us talking about Spirit Hive in the past, but you know, if you missed that episode, there's something, there's, there's a very poignant statistic that we all need to be aware of, and that is that the World Health Organization is so far measuring that one person takes their life every 40 seconds. And by this time next year, they're expecting it to double, not get better, but double to one person every 20 seconds. And now here in Australia, we have 8.68 people take their life every day. Six of those Amen. And, you know, I think that the more of us in this community that are focusing on what I call the psychosocial conversation, where we take out the sting of mental health and we make it a common conversation in and amongst our societies and in and amongst our communities where people begin to see that, you know, there's a distinction between melancholy and clinical depression. And there's a distinction between grief and post-traumatic stress. And I think that, you know, we are such complicated and emotional beings that having these conversations, I'm so excited, I'm gonna show up in a second, but having these conversations on this podcast is really in an effort to support families and to support our communities to understand that there are people suffering and we can only make a difference together. So I'm so excited to welcome Kevin Humphreys to the show today, who was an amazing find again of our beautiful Cindy, who has got the most extraordinary story that will um, no doubt bring us all to our knees, but will build us back up again as he shares what he's doing with his life these days. Kevin, welcome to the Up For A Chat show. What an honor to share this next hour with you. Hi, Karen. Um, thank you. Wow, what a uh, what an intro! It's um, I've got to say, it's really my honour, I think, to be asked to uh, come along and and share a little while with yourself and Cindy to to talk about yeah mental illness, suicide, uh, and normalising the conversation. It it is a conversation that has improved over recent years. There's no doubt about that, but we still have a long, long way to go, as you said. Uh, you know, over eight people a day in Australia die by suicide. Um, tragically, six of those eight are men. And, uh, and you know, there's got to be a reason for that. And uh, I think I know part of the reason, although I'm no expert. And uh, it's it's just something that we have to turn around. And as you said, the, the predictions are it's going to double in the near future. I think, Kevin, the fact that you have experienced um, what we're talking about, which is mental illness, uh, because I can't think of 
too many other things that would um, tr like drive somebody to take their life unless they're not thinking right or, you know, maybe it's grief. You know, even with grief, though, it, that's not necessarily the reason. But I think your story is something that uh, I know I want to hear. I Let me explain how Kevin and I met. So Kevin's wife, Megan, actually um, did our Nutrition Academy and she is a fully qualified graduate and consults on health. And she learned a lot not only in her own journey with Kevin but in the journeys of others. And we met recently at a conference and Kevin spoke in the morning and I spoke in the afternoon. And all I heard was unbelievable praise um, for your story and your presentation, Kevin. And I'm so sorry I didn't get there in the morning to hear it. So I guess it's my chance now to have you all to myself, although there'll be thousands of other people listening. <laughs> <laughs> but to, to explain what you explained at that conference about your journey, how you, you thought your life was to serve your country with arms and how it changed. And um, so if we could start how you would have started that story um, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, okay. Um, you know, I, I start off by talking about some of the stats that, that Karen spoke about. And, you know, that is that 45% of Australians will experience a mental disorder at some stage in their lifetime. And when I'm in front of a stage, I stand in the middle and I say, okay, let's divide the room left and right. Let's divide the room front and back. Who wants the mental illness, folks? Um, as we know, mental illness is not something that discriminates. It doesn't care about race, religion, gender, age, sexual preference, education, profession, income level. It really doesn't care. And, you know, eight people suicide every day in Australia, six of them are men. Uh, mental illness is all around us, but no one talks about it, or very, very few. And mental illness is this incredibly human thing. Uh, and I think until we humanise it and stop demonising it, uh, we're going to continue to have the problems that we have. And so, as you said, I, I joined the army and I thought my... Uh, my purpose in life was to serve the country through the profession of arms. Uh, and, and whilst I do believe that was true and appropriate for the better part of 20 years, uh, I've now realised that my new purpose is to lift humanity by inspiring courageous and compassionate conversations. Uh, and that's why I'm, I'm now here and uh, here on the planet and here talking to both of you. So, you know, if you were with me, uh, 30 something years ago, you would have seen a little fella about as high as a table um, watching the TV and, and seeing guys in green uniforms run through the bush and thought, wow, that looks good. I want to do that. And then as a teenager, I found myself looking up in the sky uh, at rescue helicopters that were flying past and, uh, and landing in an oval a few streets away uh, just near the house where I grew up. And uh, I thought, wow, that was pretty cool. I want to do that. And then in year 11 at school, I, uh, I found out that the Army had helicopters and I was sold. So, uh, so I went off to the Royal Military College, did my military training, uh, somehow got selected for pilot's course. Um, part of the way through there, uh, or sorry, in the first six months of there, I almost got scrubbed off course twice because I, I wasn't a very good fixed-wing pilot. But, um, but then when I got onto helicopters, then everything started to click. And indeed, by the time I finished up... Uh, 
my 18 months of pilot training, I actually ducked the course. So I was, uh, I was pretty happy with that. And indeed, I was just 21 years old when I got the keys to a Blackhawk helicopter. And, uh, and so started what some might call the, you know, the boys' own adventure of flying all around Australia and various parts of the world. Um, I had uh, yeah, the better part of, of 20 years, or 20 years it was in the Army, better part of that uh, was uh, flying around Australia, then deployments to East Timor in uh, 99, 2000, 2001. I'd done uh, drought and famine relief in Papua New Guinea in 97 and 98 deployed to Iraq in 2003 and then to Afghanistan in 2005, 2006, 2007 and 2008. Uh, and, and it was a, a very serious time in the Army, a very serious uh, thing being deployed to those various you know, conflict zones around the world and, and even the drought and famine relief. Um, it was challenging in its own way. Um, now, what a lot of people don't realise though is that even though a lot of people talk about deployments, they talk about um, how, how stressful deployed life is. Uh, and, uh, and most of that is true, if not all of that is true. What a lot of people don't realise is uh, the challenge uh, and sometimes the trauma that's encountered on a, on a normal daily basis. And during my time in the Army, 34 Australian Defence Force personnel died in Australian military helicopter crashes that had nothing to do with the enemy, had nothing to do with being shot at. Mm. They were all preventable accidents. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and I, uh, I was almost added to that list uh, a couple of times. One in particular was when I had a mid-air collision with a boat um, that, I was, uh, that I was doing external load trials on and it, it swung up beside the aircraft, wrap itself around the side of the aircraft and put a hole in the side of the aircraft as it hit. And uh, thankfully, the nose of the boat stopped about five feet underneath the rotor tips. Wow. Um, as we were flying along. And, uh, and it was just a regular day at work in Townsville. That was a, just any other regular day at work, about a kilometre from the air traffic control tower in Townsville. Um, yeah, so so that was, but that was just the normal every day, you know. Um, not get not having a mid-air collision with a boat was normal every day, but um, but we were, you know, playing high stakes pretty much every day. Um, so so life was deadly serious at home and abroad, uh, and and is for all of our military personnel just the same as it is for all of our emergency services personnel day in and day out. Um, but, you know, if we, if we have a, a quick chat about Afghanistan, which was probably the most, or not probably, it was the most challenging of my deployed um, um, operations, a couple of things over there stood out. Um, you know, we, uh, I led uh, our, our two Chinook helicopters um, in a combination with uh, Dutch Apaches and American uh, aircraft over the top and Canadian and Afghan special forces and... Uh, Australian commandos, and we conducted a, an assault onto a, a Taliban compound, literally landing these these twenty ton plus helicopters, uh, literally just meters away from the compound in the middle of the night on night vision goggles, um, completely browned out in dust, can't see anything from before you put the helicopter on the ground. Um, you know, forty seconds later, the troops are out the back and you're up out of the way as they're into the firefight. 
Uh, and we were meant to go back and pick them up about 40 minutes later. And uh, unfortunately, uh, thing be things became quite uh, frenetic on the ground and um, it became a huge firefight. Uh, so that it was about two and a half hours that we were waiting to go and pick them up. But in this time, the moon had gone down and, uh, and anyone who knows anything about night vision goggles uh, understands that uh, the night vision goggles uh, require ambient light. They magnify ambient light. So if there's no ambient light, because there's no moon, because it's overcast, um, and on top of that, the moon has gone down, so it's below the horizon now. There's no starlight because it's overcast, and there's no ground lighting because you're in the middle of Afghanistan. Um, then it's black, it's dark, uh, and the goggles really can't do anything. So, um, and the firefight was continuing and, and getting hotter. Um, and indeed, you know, one of the pilots from the other aircraft came over and, and said, whilst we were waiting, and said, hey, boss, you know, really shouldn't go. It's, uh, it's pretty fierce up there. The moon's gone down. And he was right. He was absolutely right from a technical perspective. Uh, but the fact was that there were 70 men up there that needed our help, and if we didn't get them out, they were going to be in all sorts of problems. Um, so we got the call. I told him to get back in the other aircraft and get on with it. And to his credit, he did. And, and this is courage. This is courage. Uh, he did. And we, we flew in there, and somehow we landed. In the, uh, in the horseshoe that the commandos on the ground had created for us and all hell erupted all the way around us with, um, with machine gun fire and uh, rocket propelled grenades and you name it going all around the place. We managed to get our troops on board and get out of there and not a scratch to anybody involved and, and somehow get all those people out of harm's way. Now that other aircraft though, they almost flew into the ground because it was so dark and that decision weighed on me for quite some time. There was another time we were trying to put, again, special forces onto a, onto a ridgeline and uh, hanging, you know, a, a thousand feet over this cliff edge uh, there whilst trying to back the helicopter onto a ridgeline that um, I couldn't see apart from looking over my left shoulder to get any form of a hover reference and moving the helicopter just, again, 20-odd tonnes of helicopter in the middle of the night on, on night vision goggles, moving it just inches at a time but only moving it based on what I could hear the crewman was saying because he was the only guy who could see the rocks that we were trying to avoid hitting with our blades and they were only about five feet away. Um, and so just the slightest kiss of the blades on those rocks and it would have all been over. Um, you know, another, another event was uh, Kevin, can rocket I attacks. Kevin, ask yeah. you yeah. before you go on, how does it play on your mind like um, each time you've, like I'm listening to it and I, I can't even imagine this. You know, I'm trying to stop Roundup in the council and I feel like, you know, okay. this, is, this is like how does it play on your mind, you know, that you could, I, 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 that's what I want to know and then I want to hear about the rockets. I just, yeah. I, yeah. Um, you normalise it and it becomes a necessary evil that you need to do. Um, and, and it's not about when you're there as an individual, it's not about winning the war. It's about keeping your mates alive uh, and, and it's about doing whatever is required within the laws of armed conflict to ensure that you and your teammates go home again. And, and that's, that's actually one of the things I'm going to talk about very, very shortly is the impact that that had on me. 
um, because I took that incredibly seriously and, uh, and that's part of what actually brought me undone. How old were you at this point? Uh, uh, 34. So still young. Still yeah, young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah okay. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so the rocket, it's, um, yeah, rocket attacks were, were a pretty common event at Kandahar where we were and, you know, one particular night uh, I'd just finished in my, my bedroom donger. Uh, I was walking out the front gate across to the mess hall and the familiar whistle went overhead and boom, uh, inside our compound and, and went back and my bedroom had been shredded. Uh, landed about five metres from my bedroom, went through, the shrapnel went through mine and, and three other rooms. Um, there was actually uh, a woman in the third room along um, as the shrapnel went through her room and somehow she was missed completely. Um, absolutely unbelievable that she was missed. Um, and, yeah, but as I say, and you, you came to spot on, Cindy, um, you know, the, the, the rockets, um, the bullets, the cliff edges, all that stuff, though, they actually didn't bring me undone. Um, I didn't like, don't get me wrong, I'm not sitting here um, being full of bravado and saying, you know, check me out. I didn't like them very much, but they weren't the things that brought me undone. They were seriously just another day in the life of a deployed soldier, sailor or airman. Um, what brought me undone was the worry that I put myself through wondering if I was going to send one of my men or women home in a box. Um, and, uh, and we used to attend ramp ceremonies, which is where a, a fallen soldier's casket would be put on a waiting aircraft to be sent home. And, uh, and we would go to every one of the ramp ceremonies that we could possibly get to to pay our respects. It didn't matter what nation they were from. Uh, and, and I'm very, very fortunate during my time there, um, despite the worry I put myself through, that not a single Australian um, died whilst I was there. Um, but the, the image of a flag-draped casket um, is etched into my mind um, from how many I saw. And the, the other part that absolutely tore me apart uh, was the toxic command environment that I was caught up in and, um, and that you know, continued in various ways when I got home. And, and you don't need to be in a war zone uh, to have um, bullying. You don't need to be in a war zone to have a toxic workplace. Um, I'm sure every one of your listeners can think of an environment at some stage that they've been in uh, where that kind of thing exists and, and that is cancerous uh, and it is toxic and, um, yeah, like I say, that's, that's really what brought me undone in the end. So this was... Sorry, Karen, you go. No, I was just going to say it's interesting. I've got a couple of friends of mine who were in the army and they say exactly the same thing, Kevin. They talk about how um, destructive, soul-destroying, toxic, cancerous, the leadership structure is the bullying and both of them landed up um, retiring early um, because of depression and they hands down attribute their depression and suicidal tendencies to the um, the whole structure there which is very interesting yeah it is yeah I mean it's not I mean, I suppose it's natural human behaviour to have power go to people's heads or for ha to have really poor 
people who've no idea how to lead in leadership roles. I mean, we see that in business and, you know, in educate. You know, we see it everywhere. But, you know, you kind of hope that there would be a bit better structure for the people that are keeping our country safe. That doesn't seem to be the case. No, and, you know, in many ways, defence is just another cross-section of society and uh, yeah. you know, good, good yeah. bad and different. And um, we, yeah, we do like to think that there are, there are higher standards and we do like to think that there are ideals and, and the, the ideals that are espoused in the training academies, you know, the officer training institutions and the, the non-commissioned officer and the, and the soldier training, um, training institutions, that the ideals that they espouse are, are carried forth. And unfortunately, it's not always the case. Um, normally, um, because of individuals, not so much because of policy. Policies generally are pretty good. But again, yeah. I think every person listening here would understand the difference between um, an organisation that is well run um, because of the policies versus because of the individuals. It's always the individuals who end up dictating how an organisation is run, regardless whether the policies are good, bad or indifferent. Um, and, and so when people blame the system for things, well, it's, it's individuals within the system. People make up the system um, and, and people need to be held accountable when they, um, when they behave poorly. Um, unfortunately, um, if there's a number of other individuals at, in, in higher places um, with a consistent view, then uh, that doesn't bear well. And, yeah, I mean, for me, I, you know, when I had my, my breakdown in 2008 um, and I was often kind of jumping straight up here to talk about that, but I had a breakdown in 2008 and um, took me took me nine months to get back to work. And when I, when I got back to work, I had a very empathic boss and, um, and he, he was incredible. He turned around and said, um, here I was, you know, on a return to work policy two days a week, reasonably senior officer, um, going back into work, uh, no, no limp, no sling, no cast. Um, and I, I wondered, and I still remember, you know, what are they thinking about me? What are they saying about me? What's going on behind my back? And, and the fact is that there were two types of people. There was either people who cared or people who really didn't care. Um, and, and so my paranoia was far worse than the reality. But my boss, a fellow by the name of Peter Clay, and, and I'll forever sing his praises, um, he called me in the office and he said, Kev, I know you're on a return to work policy uh, program. I don't need to know why. I just need to know how many days a week I could expect to see you here. And, um, and you need to know that you're an officer of certain rank. And for those two days a week, I expect you to produce the goods commensurate of that rank. And, and he said, one more thing you need to know about me. Excuse me. <clears throat> he said, I will never give you sympathy, but I will always give you empathy. And that was just mm. gold to me, absolutely gold. Um, you know, I didn't want to have a special project and put in the corner and, you know, people don't go and talk to Kev, just let him do his thing. Um, I wanted to get back on being me again. You know, I wanted to, to be able to be Kevin Humphreys, um, not a special project in inverted commas. 
Um, and that was just magic. But at the same time as he was incredible and empathic, another part of the army um, was quite literally labelling me as damaged goods and that nobody buys damaged goods. So my, my future career in the army was toast at that point. Isn't that, that's just, you know, oh, there's so many things to say about that, Kev, but, you know, I, I honestly, I look at, first of all, first thing I want to say is you must be a bloody good helicopter pilot is all I can say about that. You must be absolutely legendary. <laughs> absolutely legendary. I started getting my pilot's license flying a helicopter because my dad's a pilot. And, um, you know, I, I had a really awesome instructor who used to make the skids on the helicopter dance around a huge big tyre. Yep. And that was my challenge. When I could get the machine to dance around the outside of a tyre and bounce off the tyre, then I'd kind of arrive. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, Honestly, good stuff. To me, to hear all the things that you did, you must be unbloody believable. Are you still flying? Yeah, I am. I actually fly uh, rescue helicopters for uh, for Queensland government. So I'm a flight instructor and a flight examiner uh, there, and I still fly operationally uh, as well. So yeah, I still go and pluck people on the side, off the sides of cliffs or uh, ah. car accidents or in the, out in the middle of the ocean or whatever's required. So, yeah, well, still, you know what? Still I just want to say, lucky us for having you. You're amazing. You're Thank absolutely you. amazing. Thank but you. But I think um, what was the army's loss is actually society's gain. Well, they, you know, wrote, yeah, yeah. I, and and I do thank you for those comments. They're they're very humbling. Um, I can honestly say though that there are um, countless others out there, day and night, ready, willing, capable, and delivering. Um, both in the army and in the emergency services in the search and rescue space, um, that are that are every bit as capable as me, and, and indeed more so. So I, I very much take your praise, thank you. Um, but it's absolutely a team effort, and the crewmen involved are um, no less spectacular in their roles as the pilots who um, who hold onto the controls. But the you know it's interesting. I when I fell in a heap in two thousand and eight. Part of what hit me so hard was the shame that I felt as a failure that I months earlier had been in Afghanistan working with and leading incredible men and women doing amazing things on behalf of their country. And now I couldn't hold on to an ice cream without dropping it and becoming an absolute inconsolable mess in the corner or trying to hammer a nail into a wall uh, and I'm pretty reasonable as a woodworker, as a hobby, and now I found myself unable to literally put a single nail into a wall to hang a picture without, again, finding myself sobbing incoherently on the floor. And so I really honestly felt I had failed my country, and I'm not exaggerating. Um, felt I failed the army, my family, my, you know, my unit, my colleagues, my, my children. and. Now, though, I look back, um, albeit, you know, 10 years later, and I look back and I think I, I had to go through all of that for me now to be able to have the conversations that I have with people to normalise this topic and to 
help bring people around, whether it's to do with addiction, um, whether it's to do with mental illness or whatever the case may be. And, and I do believe that it is my, my new purpose um, in life, as I said. And, and so when you say that the Army's loss is, is society's gain, um, you know, it took me a hell of a long time to see that, but I, I now see that very clearly and I'm, I'm so happy and, and privileged uh, to be able to contribute now in this way. It's incredible. I have a question um, re- regarding this whole... Um, I, I guess I'm thinking about what you've done, what you have achieved, the situations you've been put in, the gunfire, the near misses, the, the everything, the incredible um, pilot that you are. So I'm, I'm thinking about all of this. But I... I want to know when was the point and what does it look like when you could no longer continue doing what you were doing? So, um, you know, what is a breakdown? What does it look like? And what happened? Was there a, a final straw that broke the camel's back or could you feel it coming on for quite some time? Yeah. Um, how long have we got? <laughs> um, so the short answer to this is it's a roller coaster, a nightmare roller coaster. And uh, I, looking back, um, first had my first panic attack was in 2000 um, after my first trip home from East Timor. Now, nothing, nothing happened of note in East Timor, I, I, and I still am completely, utterly baffled where this came from and, and why but uh, I'd been in East Timor for a couple of months I came home for uh, five weeks about five and a half weeks actually to do a five-week course at Oki and then go back to East Timor again and um, and I was actually in Brisbane walking into a shopping center to get a loaf of bread and what just seemed like a flood of people came towards me and I just instinctively completely involuntarily flattening myself against a shop window, a pane of glass. And um, you, you couldn't have made me any more thin than the sticker that was on the glass. Um, and, and I remember almost having this out-of-body experience thinking, what are you doing there? Um, and, and these people walked past and, and then some more people came past and, and eventually I peeled myself off the window managed to rush in, get the loaf of bread and, and rush out of there. And I didn't tell a soul. I didn't tell Megan. I didn't tell anybody because I didn't know what the hell had just gone on with me. And I was confused, embarrassed, everything. Um, 2003 um, in Iraq, uh, driving in the back streets of Baghdad uh, was an incident that ultimately led to nothing but scared the hell out of me at the time. And, uh, and that was what contributed well, that was my the event that led to my post traumatic stress. Um, the at the time, I sort of put on the bravado and, and put it all behind me. Um, but a few days later, and I know this by looking back at my journal that I kept, um, I noted in my journal that my hands were shaking, and I I wasn't sure why or what that was related to. Um, coming, I was back in Australia about a month, give or take, a month after that. And very shortly thereafter, um, was 
crying in the middle of the night, screaming, calling out, um, flinching. Um, you know, when I when I eventually woke up, um, asking Megan, "Am I normal? What the hell's going on with me?" Um, uh, but forbidding her from talking to anybody, and I wasn't going to talk to anybody about it because I really feared that uh, if I put my hand up as as needing some help or something not being right, that my career would have been terminated, my army um, career would have been finished. And and so that continued on in 2003, 2004, and, um, and indeed wasn't actually diagnosed till after. Um, I had my breakdown in 2008. I'll come to that in a sec. Um, 2006, um, so 2007, sorry, when I came out of Afghanistan in 2007, um, or just before I came out, I uh, found myself um, in a uh, counselling session with another officer, um, a young female officer, actually, I'm ashamed to say. And uh, Well, actually, it doesn't matter if it's male or female, I'm ashamed of, of how this happened. Um, uh, but I found myself at the point of realising that she wasn't looking at my face anymore and she was looking at my hands, and she couldn't take her eyes off my hands. My hands were shaking absolutely uncontrollably as I was um, talking to her. And um, and I looked down, and I and that's when I realised that the the game was up, so to speak. And there'd, there'd been, you know, other other indicators for me leading up to here, but none as evident as that. And um, and so in two thousand and seven. When I came out of Afghanistan, they have a, a thing called a POPS, post-operation psychological support screening or something. And I actually said at that time, I need to see somebody, I need to see a psychologist um, uh, because something's not right. And um, I, it took me about three months to see somebody, which I found unbelievable, um, both that it could take three months after I voluntarily said I need to see someone um, and also that the, the army couldn't supply one any sooner. And, and when I did, unfortunately, the psychologist that I saw, um, if anything, only made matters worse from their own lack of experience and lack of worldly exposure. Um, and so I started to, uh, started to take things into my own hands and self-medicate with alcohol um, and yeah, drank a lot a lot, a lot of alcohol and um, it didn't matter what time of the day or night or day of the week or whatever else was involved and thankfully I wasn't in a flying job. Now I'd, when I came out of Afghanistan in 2007, I went into a ground job, a desk job. But um, um, And so the, the nightmares were continuing, the, the alcohol was continuing. Um, I had uh, you know, little kids at home, had a fuse, a nanosecond long, and the combination of all that and, and the, the bullying at work was, was continuing. So the combination of all those things was um, just feeling untenable. And, um, and so got to the point where I thought, you know what, things would be a lot better if I just wasn't here. And, uh, and so I, I started thinking about ways to, to die, to finish my life. And, um, uh, and uh, one of the final straws came was a uh, a bullying event um, at work. Well, actually, I confronted the 
my supervisor who um, I perceived was bullying me and um, and he basically just laughed in my face and said, you know, I am what I am, I is what I is. Um, his exact words, I hope they're, they're still etched into my mind, but um, anyway, I won't, I won't repeat all of them. I like how you don't say his name, but you say the nice man's name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that yeah. funny how we but love look, to lift up the people that have helped us and not name the people that have condemned us? Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? The people who need to know, know who he is. Um, so that's, um, you know, and I know who he is and he knows who he is. Mm. Um, but, yeah, so... Uh, then that that weekend, um, I was doing some paving around the pool, and um, anyway, um, things just weren't going right. I couldn't get anything to go right, and uh, didn't get all the paving finished. It was now Monday morning, and and I just thought it would just be easier if I wasn't here. Um, but when I went to the point of doing something about it. I collapsed and thankfully Megan was home that day and, you know, even though I had the phone number for the unit psychologist and the doctor in my phone and I was work colleagues with them, A, I was masking it well enough that they didn't know the full extent and B, I was too ashamed to actually call them myself up to this point and ask them for help. I would just rather die. And after I collapsed, uh, Megan took my phone and asked me if I, if she wanted me, if, if I wanted her to ring them. And I was a sobbing, incoherent um, mess. I, I, I couldn't speak or I was just shaking, convulsing actually is the better word for it. I was convulsing and, and just could not do anything apart from just shake a little bit more to indicate yes, call them. Um, and so they came around and, and we spoke for a couple of hours and, um, and you know, we spoke about a lot of things. One, one thing in particular, uh, it was a question that they asked very directly and it was if I had a plan to kill myself. And, and I answered quite honestly, no despite all the things that had been going on in my mind. And, and the reason that I answered no was because in my ex such rigid way of thinking, impacted by the depression and the anxiety and the post-traumatic stress and, and all the rest of it, whilst I had a way and a place with a couple of options, well and truly mapped out for how to do it, because I didn't have a date and time scheduled in my calendar to do it, then in my very military, rigid, thinking, ill mind, I didn't have a plan. I was still only thinking about it. And so based on that, I said, no, don't have a, don't have a plan to kill myself. But I'm sure Karen can attest to um, what I now know from a reasonable point of view and what I now know about suicide um, I absolutely had a plan and, um, and, and, you know, I was contemplating doing something about it that morning, but, but managed to, um, to, to collapse instead. And so that's what I call my breakdown. Um, 
And so then from there started yeah, nine months of, of recovery and um, psychologists, psychiatrists, um, counsellors um, and all the rest of it to, to start to get myself back on track. And did you find that the psychologists and the counsellors that you saw at the time, they were able to help in that recovery period? Um, they, uh, yes, they did. Um, the psychiatrist, I've got to say, um, another, another name I won't mention, um, uh, initial diagnosis, um, was based on a, uh, about a, I can't remember how long, a very short interview where he didn't even look at me apart from the two seconds where I walked in the door and apart from the, that, he read his emails for most of the rest of the time that I was in there with him, um, which was incredibly disappointing and ended up with a diagnosis which was not correct and not accurate. Um, uh, The uh, the psychologist I found was very helpful, very effective um, going through, because at that stage, whilst the the post-traumatic stress uh, was there, it had subsided in many ways or at least taken a back seat to... Um, the depression and the anxiety had really, really taken hold. And, um, and so, you know, going through uh, CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy, um, and starting to look at exercise to get um, the, you know, the great chemicals running through the brain again, starting to eat better, um, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some stage, Cindy. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, so starting to, to work... Uh, piece by piece on getting me back together and and indeed one of the the big things that I found for myself during that time was actually visualization um, I'm a fairly visual kind of guy and um, at some stage during that nine month period I, I I somehow got the phrase my mind got me into this my mind will get me out of it and and but I needed something more than that and something I could actually visually see in my mind and so I actually thought back to the $6 million man, which um, both of you probably remember from a TV show only a few years ago. Um, but, <laughs> yes. Uh, but, uh, yes, only a couple, only a couple ladies. Um, but, yeah, so I, I loved that show, loved that show when I was a teenager. And, um, and for those who don't know, just in case there are any people under the age of oh, 20-something, maybe a bit older, um, who don't know who the $6 million man is. It was a TV show in the, in the 80s um, uh, about an astronaut that was in an accident, should have died, and they rebuilt him with robotic technology or bionic technology. Um, and the, the catch cry was that um, we have the technology to rebuild him, make him better, faster, stronger than he was before. And, and so um, I would put, visually, I would put my head on his body and I would see him, me as him, in my mind, running or doing this or doing that. And so whether I was out for a run, sitting in the psychiatrist's office, going for an ice cream with the kids, um, whatever it was, going for a loaf of bread, um, I would see my head on his body and I would say to myself again and again and again, we have the technology, we can rebuild him, going to make him better, faster, stronger than before. I'm going to rebuild my brain. and, and that became my mantra, and, uh, and that helped get me back to work. That's brilliant. <laughs> that is absolutely brilliant. Can we now talk about 
um, what Megan learnt and how she um, helped with um, your recovery as yeah. well. Um, yeah, as I, I mentioned, you know, about exercise and, um, and cognitive behavioural therapy and, and thinking, but um, now we, this is going back 10 years ago and, and Megan, what, Megan only found you, Cindy, three years ago, I think three, maybe four years ago. Um, and, and so Megan's always had an interest in, in nutrition and eating well. Um, she was a surf life-saving captain. She's a, a swimmer and, and whatnot. Um, and, and she's always had an interest in, in nutrition. Um, but, uh, and, and so, and thankfully for me, um, she is an outstanding cook. <laughs> she is a brilliant cook and she will give anything a go. And, um, you know, I think in our almost 25 years of marriage, there's only been two occasions where I've said, you know what, honey, you don't have to cook that one again. Um, and, and so she will give anything a go. She loves fresh fruit, uh, fresh food. Um, and, and so when, where we were living when uh, I had my breakdown uh, was actually we're on a, a couple of acres and we had our own veggie patch and, um, and totally organic, although we didn't use that phrase at the time. Uh, but, you know, no herbicides, no this, no that. Um, no, nothing going into the soil unless it's natural from, from the soil, effectively, um, in some way, shape or form. And, um, and so we had uh, a, a pretty reasonable uh, crop of food. Uh, we also uh, used to get meat from, uh, from a butcher where we knew um, where and how the, um, where the meat came from. And, and so we... Um, we then, you know, we started particularly after I had my breakdown. Uh, let me see. Yeah, because we, we moved into that house only a couple of months prior to my breakdown. And so, as I said, this had been leading up for, for years and years prior to that. And so we were now in this house with the, the veggie patch, you know, good veggie patch and all the rest of it um, for the period of my recovery and then subsequent years after that. Um, for a few years before we then moved again. But, um, but yeah, so Megan was um, emphatic that we had good quality food, um, locally sourced wherever it, wherever it could be, and that, um, and that, you know, processed foods and all the rest of it. Um, she's never been a fan of them anyway, um, but where possible, um, she would just eliminate them, and not just for her, but for us as well. Much to the chagrin of the of the kids and myself at times, I've, I've got to say. Um, and you know, we got to the point of being, um, or sorry, I got to the point of being functional again. And this is another one of the things that I talk about: is that yes, I got myself back to work um, uh, after nine months or so. But you know, we I actually kept that a secret for seven years and I got Megan to keep it a secret for seven years as well because I was so ashamed um, of what had happened. And, and so it was only in 2015 that I actually started talking about it publicly for various reasons, haven't got time to go into, into them all now. Um, but I think it was 2014, 2015, about the same time that Megan uh, and I both saw you, I think, Cindy, for the first time, um, talking about um, everything that it is that you talk about so incredibly well, um, and and Megan really started to to 
change up our diet and improve our diet and indeed over the last 12 months has gone to incredible levels with it. Um, but what we found was absolutely incredible the difference that what I call quality, clean food makes to your mental health. Um, so, so getting rid of the preservatives, getting rid of the processing uh, and, and just getting to good old-fashioned um, food that you know what it is and where it came from because the uh, – and, and you, you two ladies know this far better than I do and, and can say it far more um, eloquently than I can. But the gut is the first filter for the brain. And if we want to have a brain that's clear of fog and if we want to have a brain that is able to think straight and we want to have um, the ability to get in front of ourselves when it comes to mental illness and not let our, our, our unconscious, um, you know, our reptile brain hijack our, uh, our conscious brain, um, then we need to eat decent, quality, clean food. Um, in order to give the brain the best possible chance at doing that. And, and indeed, you know, I've, I've now been to a couple of uh, seminars or symposiums with uh, Dr. Norman Doidge, a psychiatrist out of the States, as well He's as... He's amazing. Absolutely. Vessel <clears throat> uh, van der Kolk as well, mm. um, and talking about traumatic brain injuries and, and various other things. And, and, yeah, they're both huge advocates of... Uh, the the need for cell chemistry to be uh, through diet uh, and through what you put in your mouth to be the first step of neuroplasticity and you know, good mental health. It's interesting. I have in front of me right now an army ration pack that was oh. given. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, this is what you guys are eating when you're out there on manoeuvres. And it's disgusting. I'm sorry, but the Australian government need to pick their act up. But it's got flavour enhancers. I'm, I'm reading it. This is the chunky chicken and vegetables. So this is from a 2011 pack that still sits um, on my office desk um, or just to the side of it. And the ingredients are... Um, so this is a, the chicken and vegetables. It's got water, uh, chicken, stock, water, marine salt, rice flour, sugar, natural flavours, yeast extract, vegetable protein extract, dehydrated vegetables, flavour enhancers, 627631, canola oil, um, then it's got a couple of vegetables and then it's a modified maize, a starch, a sugar, salt, and then fake vitamins and minerals. And, you know, I, I wonder about you guys that, and the girls, that if you're going on manoeuvres and you have to think straight and you have to think smart and you're being fed this, they've also got musks and spearmint, juicy fruits. I've got a scotch finger. I think this was three days, he said. Um, so I've got scotch fingers um, and then I've got a chocolate drink. <laughs> uh, and then um, this one, what's this one? This is a, a barbecue beef that starts with wheat. So I, I just find if, if we have so many people in the army with this issue that we're now seeing, why, why are we not changing this? Why is there 
Because surely if we kept our brains moving well and you had that cognitive behaviour, and no doubt Megan would have talked to you about the summit and all the emotional freedom technique that she would have learnt about. Mm. You know, I, I just think it's, and I do believe there's some research on EFT and um, post-traumatic stress um, disorder. So I, I see you and Megan as, you know, fighting this fight or winning this whatever it is that we have to win in order to make sure our soldiers come back okay. Yeah, and it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a huge, you know, to say it's a huge issue is a, is a huge understatement. Um, you know, the, the, the ration packs, and I'm not, not, not um, defending them in any way. Indeed, when I first joined the Army in 91, I was eating ration packs that were um, coming out of Vietnam. Um, so... You know, things have improved <laughs> a little bit since then. <laughs> but, um, but, but, yeah, and the, yeah, the, the ration packs, it's, it's again, the, the trade-off, and I'm not defending them in any way, um, and I, I'm absolutely sure they can do a hell of a lot better than what they're currently doing. Um, uh, it needs to be in a way that is portable and useful for, for what the soldiers need. Um, as well and and they do attempt to have um, fresh rations wherever they can Um, but you know for for a lot of the a lot of the troops when they're out there in the field themselves then that just simply isn't possible Um, and so yeah I'd love to be able to work out um, how how do we get them appropriate clean food in my words um, that will sustain them for the you know days and weeks at a time that they're away. Well, I've been thinking about it, Kevin. So we need to get together and really thinking about it Um, because I just feel that if we had the right food for them, then, you know, it would be at least a start. I know there's a lot more involved and and I understand that, but I think everybody works in their own area of expertise and then we bring it all together. Maybe we can help um, just a little bit. Yeah, so, absolutely. so going away from food because it always comes back to food with me. But let's let's move away from food as we finish up um, this podcast. Is there anything that um, we haven't spoken about that you want to talk about about your speaking, about what you're doing? I, I've put I'll put in the show notes how people can contact you um, for speaking engagements. Because is there anything that you want our audience to know? Um, that we haven't spoken about yet. Um, yeah, I guess the, the one thing I'd say is that you, and, and this is said a number of times, but you never know. You mm-hmm. just never, ever, ever know two things. One is what someone else is going through or has been through or what's going through their mind at a given point in time. And unless you ask the question and the other person is willing and prepared to tell you or let them in under the mask then you'll never ever know because none of us are mind readers so so that's that's number one um and the second one is you never ever know when something you say something you do will be life-changing for somebody else and um and and that became really clear to me um last year and i'll I'll make this really quick so i know we need to wrap up but um, last year I got invited to The Hague and um, in the Netherlands. Um, one of the Dutch Apache pilots that I flew with in 2006 um, 
uh, on that mission that I spoke about where we picked up those 70 guys. Um, he went back again in 2007, 2008, 2009, and he contacted me last year. We'd been in, in loose contact, and he contacted me last year and said, Kevin, um, hope you're well, and uh, I was wondering if you could come to The Hague in August to see me get presented the military order of William. And I went, wow, um, yeah, sure. And I looked it up and it's basically their equivalent of Victoria Cross, uh, but it comes with a knighthood. And it's only the third one to be presented or awarded since World War II. And, uh, and he said, and by the way, we'll pay. <laughs> Happy with that. Um, wow. And so I trotted off to The Hague on the 31st of August last year, watched the parade, 600 people on parade, Sultan's royalty, whoever else in the crowd, Kev Humphreys. Um, after the parade, ushered into this little stone building. It was only about 800 years old, called the Grand Hall of Knights. And, um, and then was ushered over this little red roped-off area and was told, this is the regal reception area and the king and queen will be here to meet you shortly. And so I wandered over there and there were three Americans standing there as well and, and each of those had been there one each year in 2007, 8 and 9 and worked with Roy, the fellow who got the award. And we were the only three people, uh, foreigners, invited by Roy personally. Um, all the rest were official guests and all the rest. Um, and, and Roy came over with the king and the queen and, and introduced me and uh, or did the introductions with the Americans and then with me. And, and then I was standing there literally shoulder to shoulder with the, the King of the Netherlands and, and the Queen beside him and, and then Roy. And, and Roy said, uh, you know, Your Majesty, this is Kevin Humphreys. Uh, he was the Chinook commander in Afghanistan uh, in 2006 when I was there as a junior captain. And I got immense inspiration for his loyalty, his devotion to the ground troops and his innovative approach to come up with missions to keep them safe. And he became my role model for the last three years or for the next three years. That just floored me. Now, I'd had maybe uh, three missions that I flew with Roy. I think I had about 10 conversations with him over the, over the period of a few weeks. But I had no idea of the impact I had on that young man. And, and the reason I, I add this at the end is because um, if I had killed myself 10 years earlier, I never would have known the impact I had on this guy. And I never would have known that just by doing what I do every day at that time inspired him to go on and do something incredible. And, and so I, I've, you know, talk about this at the end of my presentation to ask the audience and indeed for everybody listening to this podcast, my challenge to you is who are you going to inspire to do something incredible without even realising it? Not by trying, just by doing what you do every day. And whether that's changing perceptions around Roundup whether that's changing perceptions um, for your family around what it is that they eat, whether that's looking out for a loved one for their mental health. Um, we can act in very simple ways and yet have hugely profound impacts on other people and, and change the planet. So wow. hopefully that inspires wow. some people to, to do just that. Well, I've got goosebumps, so all my goosebumps are very inspired at the moment. That was, <laughs> that was just incredible. Like I got very teary and I went, you're right. You are so right. And I think everybody affects people in every way. 
we just don't know which ways it is and let's make it positive and inspiring. So, oh, Kevin, thank you so much. Uh, this has been an incredible hour for me and, and Karen, I know. Definitely. Definitely. It's been, it's been an amazing time and thank you so much for sharing yourself with obviously all of our listeners but, of course, everything that you do on a day-to-day basis. And I just love how you've just added that little extra bit of information mm. in there for everybody so because, you know, I, I, I'm so with you 100% that if we are going to make change on this planet, it's not going to come from, you know, uh, an island in the stream. It's going to come from us doing things together and collectively. But it's, you know, how much and what are we willing to contribute to the lives of others, whether knowingly or unknowingly? You know, I think mm. if we wake up each morning and we, we wake up inspired ourselves, then that can only breed more inspiration. So I think it's, you know, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful way to finish the show. So thank you so much for everything that you've shared with us today, Kevin. It's been amazing. Uh, thank you, ladies. Thank you, Cindy and Karen. It's, um, yeah, my, as I said, my, my honour to be here. Thank you for the invitation to, to come on and spend the last hour with you. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Uh, yeah, so I have a, a website. It's my name, so kevinhumphreys.com.au. That's um, Humphreys spot H-U-M-P-H-R-E-Y-S. And I'm on okay. Facebook and LinkedIn just under my name as well. So you can find me on any of those. All right. We'll make sure that we put those, those um, details in the show notes. Kevin, this has been an amazing show. Thank you so much once again. It's been incredible. Cindy, you're an absolute legend as always. Thinking you're fabulous for finding these incredible peeps. Look at you go. I love it. Champion. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do. And yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> so for all of our listeners, hopefully you guys have loved today's show and it's been thought-provoking for you. Head on over to our Facebook page at all the w's.facebook.com forward slash up for a chat. And you can post any comments or questions there. And if you want to chat with Kevin directly, You'll find all of his comments, uh, sorry, all of his contact details in our show notes. You can also head on over to all the w's.thewellnesscouch.com forward slash up for a chat. Most importantly, though, make sure that you tune in next week right here on Up for a Chat and you get to become part of the ripple effect. It's an actual point of fact, changing the world together. We're going to see you on the ride. Bye for now, everyone. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.